practice of Round Oak Resources Tree Farms, we build forests, and Murray Company Realty, proud supporters of the University of Georgia Griffin Campus, and proud to bring you this installment of the University of Georgia Griffin Campus News over WKEU AM 1450, 102.3 FM, and 88.9 FM, The Rock, Georgia Public Radio at its finest. The Harris's involvement with the students of today ensure for our community a brighter tomorrow. The University of Georgia Griffin Campus invites you to join us for news and information about the many and varied programs and activities at the UGA Griffin Campus. Information about gardening, the agriculture programs, and your UGA degree at the University of Georgia Griffin Campus. Your UGA degree is closer than you think. This program is made possible by Frank and Karen Harris of Round Oak Resources Tree Farm and Murray and Company Realtors. Listen each Thursday at 9 o'clock a.m. for the UGA Griffin Campus News. This program is produced by WKU AM 1450 and 102.3 FM and The Rock 88.9 FM and streamed live on our website, wkuradio.com. Join us now with our guests from the UGA Griffin Campus. And good morning and welcome to this program of the University of Georgia Griffin Campus News. I'm Tony Braske, your morning host, and we are joined today via the telephone by Bob Westerfield, the Extension Horticulturalist and Coordinator who works on the University of Georgia Griffin Campus. Bob, it's always a pleasure to have you back on the program, sir. It, uh, I always learn so much from you, and today we're going to talk a little bit about fall gardening, but first let's find out what's going on in the world of Bob Westerfield. Well, good morning, sir. It's good to be back with you guys again. Um, like everyone else, I'm just uh, kind of living through all the craziness we've got going on in the world with the with the COVID and everything else. But uh, I tell you, it's, it's been a busy summer. Um, we've had a lot of gardening issues coming up throughout the summer. And, um, you know, it's kind of hard to believe that we're actually talking about the fall garden when it's been like 90 degrees out here. But, you know, if you snooze, you lose. So we have to kind of get prepared and get ready to get right into the next season, which is, you know, fall and winter vegetables. Well, before we get into that, Bob, uh, has your schedule been affected? Usually, you know, you go all over the state, particularly at this time of the year, to to inspect gardens and do all sorts of of seminars. How has your personal schedule been affected by the, the public health emergency? You know, it really has been affected greatly. Um, you're right. I normally would be doing a lot of in-person programs. Um, we would be uh, loaded up this past spring with uh, numerous seminars uh, and so forth, and, and it's all changed. Uh, with that, you know, the university's restrictions and this, um, a lot of what we've been doing now has been webinars. You know, we're going online using Zoom, which is a, a vile way to put out a, a program. Um, we are also um, doing a lot of stuff virtually in forms of looking at pictures of things instead of actually going out looking at plants. I still have made quite a few field visits over this past um, several months, but as far as the programs go, it's, it's really been uh, virtual, if you want to call it that. And then, you know, from the university campus standpoint, um, we, we were kind of on lockdown for a while. It's kind of opening up a little bit more, things getting back a little bit more normal, but certainly we're nowhere where we were. Does it feel a little bit more like a campus now that classes are back in session, in building? It kind of does, but it's just not the same um, because, you know, they are actually still are teaching a lot of classes um, via computer. There are some in-person classes going on. But, you know, it's, it, it's one of these things, and maybe it's the new norm, but you're kind of walking around the campus seeing everybody, you know, wearing a surgical mask. And uh, it, it's kind of, for everyone, I'm sure, it's kind of an odd feeling to think, hey, you know, we're at, in class today, but then... You, know, you see a bunch of people walking around with masks, so it's. Uh, I guess I haven't gotten used to it yet. Maybe some people have. Well, unfortunately, we had you scheduled a couple of weeks ago, and we had some technical problems here at the station that made that uh, impossible. So we're we're getting to this program really two weeks later than we certainly intended, as the the topic of conversation is going to be preparing for the fall and winter vegetables. And uh, so, you know, how much time was lost in terms of what you can do in your garden what, or what should have been done in the two-week interim where we didn't get to have you on? Really, you know, those two weeks are not going to come into play um, too much. We, there's still plenty of time to prepare for the winter garden. A lot of the summer garden is beginning to fizzle out. Um, as we get in this late season, you get a lot of pressure coming in from disease and insects. 
and just basically we call senescence. Senescence being just the decline of the plants over time. So we, we're still in good shape. Um, I think folks need to continue to, you know, harvest the summer gardens. But if the plants are getting really bad looking, uh, begin to pull those plants out, maybe put them in a compost pile, and get ready for the winter garden because we can essentially begin to plant that now. Even though it's hot, those plants are going to survive and make it into the cooler weather. And to answer your question more specifically, um, we have got, we've got a window of getting that done as far as planting the winter garden between now and I would say upwards of about the end of September. Um, that's when you really want to have it done by so the plants can get established before the cool weather actually starts to come in. Well, so clearly it's not too early to be thinking about a fall garden, but let, let's wrap up the summer before we move on in our seasons. Are there things out there that can still be harvested safely and it won't be and maybe affected by disease and will still be fresh? Well, I'll give you, a, uh, for instance, in my own garden, um, I can barely keep up with okra right now. Okra, it, okra loves it when it's hot and nasty and everything else is basically giving up the ghost. Uh, okra is out there producing like crazy. It, it loves hot, tropical weather, so it is coming in. Okra will continue to produce well for most people all the way up to we have the first cold frost. And as you know, that can vary. It could be the end of October before we have a hard frost, and, 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 and okra will hang out till that time. Same thing with green peppers. You know, your bell peppers, your banana peppers, uh, hot peppers. They are very tolerant of the heat. Um, they're going to continue. We're pulling peppers in by the five-gallon bucket loads here at my farm, um, and, and there'll be nothing to stop them until we get that first hard frost. The things that are really suffering are probably about done, at least in our, on our neck of the woods. Uh, the cucumbers have about fizzled out. Um, tomatoes are just really not enjoying the super, super hot temperatures. They're, they're producing a little bit, but they've really slowed down. Most of the summer squash now has basically played out. So there are several things you know, that are kind of given up, but peppers, okra, um, maybe a few other things. We've got pumpkins out there right now. Um, they're, they're hanging in there pretty well. Well, you, you've mentioned the heat, and uh, can't talk about the weather and heat unless we talk about rainfall as well. The official weather recording station on the University of Georgia Griffin campus has given us right now through the 1st of September at any rate a rain surplus of the year of 17 inches. I think it was 17.01. We've already seen as much rain through the first eight months of the year than we get in a typical year. How does that affect what you can plant or does it? Well, I'll tell you one thing it affects is how much you irrigate. And uh, there have been past years where, you know, like every other day, it seemed like we had our, our drip irrigation systems out there trying to keep the plants alive. You know, it's 90 degrees and dry and hot and not a chance of rain in the area. Uh, this year, you know, you fast forward to this year and, and everything else is going crazy this year. But, you know, we had the weather. We had the rain. It's coming in. Um, a couple of times it messed us up when we planted. It rained so hard it actually scattered the seed from what we planted. So that messed us up. But it's in terms of, you know, having to cut back on irrigation, absolutely. I mean, I haven't turned the irrigation on my garden probably on in over a month or so because we've had enough rainfall to substantiate the growth of the plant. So, um, you know, on, on that side of things, it's good. One thing you do get, though, when you have excess moisture and, and water, particularly late in the season, it is going to increase the amount of disease you see. Most disease, particularly those that are on the foliage, um, will be very prone to develop rapidly when it stays moist, wet, and humid. And we certainly see those conditions. Now, does the humidity that we've experienced, and it's been intense for the last couple of weeks, and that's expected to continue for a little while longer, does that affect how you store vegetables? Not really. Um, what it does is it, it, it sometimes will affect how fast you need to harvest them. You really need to get your vegetables out of the garden the minute they hit their prime size. And prime size is not always the biggest size. You know, you're better off to get a tomato, in my opinion, picked before it turns 100% red on the vine. Take it a little bit early, let it finish it up in the house, particularly this time of the year, because when you leave it out there in this humidity, you are asking for problems. Same thing with all your vegetables, your squash or cucumbers. Um, you know, as soon as they're a good size to eat, go ahead and harvest them. But in most cases, a lot of these vegetables are going to come into the house, which is a lot lower humidity, or if they're being stored in a refrigerator, you know, they're going to, they'll, they'll do pretty well. 
and the outdoor humidity probably won't affect them that much at that point. Well, one thing that, especially us novice gardeners, need to know about the rain, think of it like this. This 17-inch surplus does not mean that we can go all this time without rain and everything's going to be normal. Think of it like this. If you have a, a dog and you're going away for a, for the day, you can't give him 10 pounds of food and expect him to ration that. And I think it works the same way with gardens. You get 17-inch surplus of rain. The plants don't understand that it's a surplus and will use what it needs. <laughs> It, you're absolutely right. It's feast and famine, and and you know we could who knows we you know we could close down for for the next three and a half four weeks of no rain, and then all of a sudden you're like, hey, what's happening out here? But right, the plants don't regulate it very well. In fact, they're little water hogs. That sometimes, um, particularly tomatoes and things like that, you'll often see them when that heavy rain comes in. They will suck in more water than they need, and then we get some things happening called fruit cracking. And fruit cracking, I'm sure folks have seen, it's where the tomatoes have got splits in them. Sometimes it'll look like concentric circles coming around the top of the plant where it's just split open. And what happens, basically, that that tomato, that pepper, whatever it is, even cucumbers, it'll suck in so much water, almost, you know, um, way too much that it just can't go anywhere else. And boom, that that skin, that outside just breaks open and it, and it splits. And, and sometimes that can cause issues. Well, let's get on to the fall garden. We, I think, you know, with summer rapidly vanishing and Labor Day coming up just around the corner. Uh, and I know on the Westerfield farm that a lot of fall planting has already gone on. What types of things do best in the fall in terms of a vegetable garden? Yeah, sure. So there's actually quite a few things that you can transition to in the fall. Um, we are actually sometime later this evening, we'll be planting some more fall vegetables Certainly your greens are, are ready to be planted right now. They can be direct seeded. And when I say greens, what I'm referring to are things like collards, mustard, turnips, um, spinach, those type items. You can direct seed them. You don't need a transplant. Um, just work up the bed nice and smooth, put the seed out and a little fertility, and then lightly either pack it in or, or drag it just to get some good soil seed contact. Um, from transplants, and I'd rather see you plant from transplants, broccoli, cauliflower, Brussels sprouts, all those things are going to do better if they start from a small plant. Um, you should begin to see these plants, or, or they should be available right now in the garden centers. We grow all of our own transplants, but, you know, most folks don't do that, so they, they should start to see the, the fall crop in the garden centers right now. Um, they can certainly be planted in the ground, and you know, the real key, and we talked about water, you know, but really when you first plant the seeds or the oldest plants, you need to make sure they get watered evenly, which means, you know, nice little steady irrigation um, every couple of days just to get them established. Of course, if we have a, you know, a, a bomb of rain come in, that's going to take place of that. But if it's, you know, a couple of days where it's going dry, you want to make sure you keep them wet. You want to try to establish that root system particularly when we're in these hotter temperatures. Does the amount of rainfall that we've received affect how deeply you might plant something, considering that the soil might be a little more better hydrated at a lower level than what we're accustomed to? I would still recommend that folks plant pretty much level with the top of, if it's a transplant, a top of the root ball, if, we, if we'll call it that, the top of the container. Right. You don't want to plant them any deeper or any shallower. Um, certainly what would be a benefit if it was, you know, and you know, who knows, like I say, every year is different, but, but certainly in years that we've got a tremendous amount of rain, um, folks that have got raised bed gardens, you know, where you actually have elevated up the soil, are going to perform better. They're just going to drain better, and you have less issues with root rot and, and diseases that kind of come from that direction. Well, when it comes to transplants and, and, you know, making it at the top of the root ball, what about spacing laterally? Is that something that gardeners need to keep in mind? It really is. Um, you know, on, on a seed pack, you'll normally see some suggested planting depths and spacing, and, and, and folks need to pay attention to that. When you, when you pick up transplants, it may or may not have any instructions on there. So you need to have a general feel for, hey, how big at maturity does this plant get? So, you know, if you're planting something like cabbage, um, if you ever planted cabbage before, you know, you buy a little transplant, it's, gosh, maybe about two, three inches across. When that plant matures and the head of that cabbage is finally ready, um, that thing is a good three, three and a half foot wide because it's not just the cabbage head, it's the foliage that kind of hangs out from the side. 
so that being said, you know, you need to space cabbage and even things like broccoli, um, cauliflower. Give them a good three feet around each side so that there's plant, so there's room for a you to walk and 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 also for that plant to be able to spread out without crowding each other. So giving it, you know, several feet in between is important. It doesn't look like it when you first put it in the ground. It looks like, oh, my gosh, there's so much room in between here. But remember, when those plants begin to grow and thrive, they're going to spread out. Well, we should be getting started or at least preparing. We've got till the end of September possibly to get our fall gardens planted. Is it too late to test your soil? No, it's not. Um, any, any time of the year is a good time to test soil, but... But certainly if, you know, you, you have not did any type of soil test for the spring and you're unsure of, hey, I wonder where, you know, my, my pH is, the pH being the alkalinity or the acidity, which is very important, or I wonder what my nutrition levels are, um, get with your local county extension office, depending on what county you're in. It'll be University of Georgia County Extension you could look up, um, and they will give you instructions for how to take a very accurate soil sample. And basically what you'll do is you go to multiple sites in the garden You'll pull up soil, mix it up into a, a bag or whatever, and they need about a cup full of soil, and then they'll send it off to our labs in Athens. And what it will give you back is a, a very accurate recipe um, for if you need to put lime out there or, hey, you're a little bit low on phosphorus. So it, it, it's much better than trying to guess at it. And, and so to answer your question, yeah, right now if you have not done a soil sample, and even if you've got your winter garden already planted, it certainly wouldn't hurt to see where you are fertility-wise. Now, one topic that we can discuss that I don't ever recall us having a conversation about that has been suggested today is the use of cover crops in your winter garden if you're not going to plant vegetables. Could you explain to our listeners just what a cover crop is and then what types of things that you would plant in place of vegetables? Sure, yeah. So a cover crop in general um, is, is normally described as sort of a, it's a, it's a non-harvesting, non-edible crop that you're using to basically fill part of your garden to hold the soil to keep it from eroding. It also builds the soil eventually when it's tilled in by providing organic matter. Um, and to some extent, you know, particularly if you're using things like clover, um, which is what we call a legume, it will actually provide nutrition in the form of nitrogen later on when it gets tilled in, since legume-type crops like clover actually produce nitrogen in the soil. Um, all that being said, it's a great idea if you're not going to maybe either plant all of your garden or, or you're saying, hey, I'm tired, I've had enough of this summer garden, I just want to rest. Well, don't just leave bare soil out there. Take up all the summer crop, put it in the compost pile, till up the area, and then plant a cover crop. Now, a cover crop can be many different things, um, but I like to see a combination of what we mentioned earlier, the, a legume crop. One of the ones I use quite a bit is crimson clover. It's a fairly cheap clover seed you can purchase. Along with that, I want to put in a grass-type crop. And by grass, I mean something like wheat or oats or rye, R-Y-E. And you can buy those at local feed stores. Oftentimes, places like Tractor Supply will carry them. Now, when I mention rye, let me back up one second. I'm not saying ryegrass. There's two different things. You want the cereal grain rye. It looks a lot like wheat when it's growing. You do not want to plant ryegrass. Ryegrass is a seed that's very readily available at all the big box stores. People use it to green up their, their dormant grass, but it's not what you want to use in the garden. It's very tenacious. Um, it, it, it's difficult to eradicate, and you just don't want it. So you want rye, cereal rye, wheat, oats, and possibly something like either crimson clover or some people even plant what's called winter peas. And, and that all mixed into the garden when it germinates with a little bit of fertility will look pretty throughout the wintertime. It holds the soil, it protects it, and then when you fast forward to the spring, when you terminate that crop, and by terminating, I mean basically mowing it and tilling it in, it provides good organic matter and nutrition to the soil. See, now, I'm glad that you mentioned the, the legumes because, you know, when I hear that word, I think of beans and peas. I didn't really understand that clover fell into that family. So That's you, right. You, uh, you've kind of covered that. And, we, again, when you're talking about the rye, we're not talking rye grass. We're talking about rye that you make the bread out of, rye that you make the, the alcoholic beverage from, and not rye grass, which adorns your lawn. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, we're talking bourbon rye. You're right. <laughs> well, you know, 
even for an experienced gardener such as yourself and others in our listening audience, what are some of the more difficult fall and winter crops to grow? Okay, I, w- I would say at the top of the list of difficulty, and I've got two of them. Um, a, and I, and I call it the graduate school of winter garden vegetables, is cauliflower. Now, cauliflower and broccoli are a very similar plant. They're in the same family. Uh, when they first start out, they look the same until they, you know, the head starts to develop. Broccoli is going to form up way faster than cauliflower, and it is going to be almost sort of a beginner's winter plant, broccoli. Cauliflower, on the other hand, takes a long time to develop, and it sits there and sits there. And as it, you know, the longer a crop sits in the garden, the more potential for things like cabbage loopers and and diseases to hit it. So it's a very long term crop, and eventually it puts out a nice little head. But it, again, you know, it's, it's, it, if you're making good cauliflower in the garden, you have you have arrived at gardening. The other thing to me that's extremely tricky for people, and this gets back to, to the greens, is spinach. I don't know why, per se, but spinach is the most finicky little green out there. Um, most people have a lot of trouble growing it. It doesn't like it wet. It doesn't like it dry. Um, it doesn't like it, you know, hot. It doesn't like it too cold. It's, it's, it's like a finicky teenager or something, and you have to just, you know, just about sit out there and pray over it to keep it going. So spinach, cauliflower, some of the toughest little winter challenges, but they're they're certainly fun to grow. You know, on, on cauliflower right now in my garden, um, we don't just have the standard you think big whitehead cauliflower. We play around a little bit. There are varieties out there. We've got one called graffiti, and it actually forms a purple cauliflower head. So it's kind of cool looking, and it actually return, retains the color when you're cooking it. Uh, there's another one called cheddar, and you can almost guess it's got a heavy yellow color to it. So you don't have to stick with the you know the, the common white head cauliflower and once you get to where you can grow some hey try a couple of colorful ones well you're making a pretty good uh, you're getting all the ingredients for a pretty good salad what about lettuce i mean you mentioned cabbage does lettuce grow well in this environment i don't think it's native to georgia is it no um you know and that would be another one that i would put kind of on the tricky list lettuce is easy to grow but it can be difficult to maintain and here's why Lettuce is very finicky. Um, it, it really prefers cooler climates than we have. First of all, when you think of lettuce in the stores, a lot of times you think of the big iceberg, the big head of lettuce. Well, we, we are nowhere close to being in the climate to grow that. That grows up in the upper northern states and some of the northern parts of California. Um, we cannot grow iceberg lettuce here with the, with the temperatures that we have. Even with the cooler temperatures you know, we have in the fall and the early spring, it's, till, it's too warm for that type. So we have to stick to the leaf-type lettuces. And these are ones that are like romaine lettuce or um, one called butter crunch, the leafy-type lettuces. And one of the problems most people have is you can direct seed them. You can take seed and put it directly in the garden, but you really don't want to cover the seed. And they're very fine. It's like putting pepper in your hand almost. If you were to sneeze or, you know, cough, all that seed would probably blow away into the Neverland. So... You have to be real careful when you put it out, and here's the key. When you put that seed on the, on the bed of the soil, just pat it in gently with your hand. Don't cover it. It needs a lot of sunlight to germinate, and if folks are having trouble getting it to germinate, they probably have covered it up. So you just want to pat it to make sure it sticks to the ground, but you want to leave it out and exposed to the sun. The problem with lettuce is it's very sensitive to heat, and even, a, you know, our winter days, we can be at, 30 degrees one minute, and it goes up to 65 or 70 that afternoon. When lettuce senses warm weather, um, it tries to bolt. And by bolt, I mean it starts to stick out a flower stalk, and it's trying to get up there to reproduce seed. And when that happens, it makes the lettuce very bitter. So if we can stay in a nice pattern of cool temperatures, you can, you can grow some tremendous leaf lettuce in Georgia. But if we have a time where, you know, the weather's going crazy, where it's, hey, it's pretty cool right now, and then boom, we get up into like the 80s or something like that, you're liable to have problems with the bitterness. And one thing about lettuce, too, you all, you hear this uh, all too often when it comes to, to lettuce on the news is the, the outbreaks of listeria. Uh-huh. I mean, is that native to other regions of the country, or can listeria affect vegetables here in our state? You know, I, I think they could, but you rarely hear about it here in our state. 
and, and a lot of these things, you know, do do come into play when it's when when there's sanitation involved and so forth. A lot of some of the issues you've heard on lettuce, even into um, you know some of the um, where they've had recalls, is based on some of the cultural practices that are used. A lot of places will use manures, which are you know animal stable manures, as part of their fertility program. Sometimes those manures have not been composted enough, and and of course we know where that goes when that when that forms up on the leaf. You know you could still have some of the E. coli and things like that that are still active and present. So. You know, certainly you have to be careful when you're doing those things. Um, but but most people growing lettuce here in the state are probably going to be using different forms of fertility. May not be using barn manures and directly applying right over the top. So I, I think you know using good sanitation measures. Um, I I haven't heard of any lettuce outbreaks you know that occurred from Georgia. The other thing is, in all honesty, we're not a heavy lettuce producer. Right. Um, there are plenty of home gardens that grow on lettuce, but there are very few commercial operations that are growing lettuce on a big scale. And most of the ones that do it are actually doing it in greenhouses or hydroponically. And hydroponically means growing without soil. They're growing it in a water medium, which is, you know, extremely safe. Yeah, you know, I was. We're, we'll get to a little bit more about the indoor or garden box type things, window box type vegetation yeah. here in just a moment. But you mentioned broccoli, and the one thing about me, I I can't tell when broccoli's ready to be harvested. Are there some telltale signs that people should look for? You know, I think over time you just sort of look at it and say, yeah, that one's ready to go. Um, first of all, let me say this: most of the broccoli that you see at the store, you know, when you're just running in a Kroger, Ingalls, wherever you go, it's not coming from Georgia. It's probably coming from out, you know, California, somewhere like that. And they've got better growing conditions than we do. They can let those heads get up there, and you've probably seen them in the store. Some of them, you know, 10, 12 inches diameter or whatever. Um, you really don't want to let your broccoli go that long in the, in the state of Georgia because of, again, we've got more humidity, a few more issues. Uh, when that head begets to about the size, oh, maybe about 8 inches across in diameter, um, that's when I make the initial cut on the broccoli, taking a sharp knife, go to the base of that broccoli cluster and cut it off with a sharp knife or you can use a sharp pruning clippers. Like a good, clean cut. After you have done that, fertilize your broccoli again. Sprinkle a little fertilizer around it. Keep it irrigated if, it's, you know, if we're not getting any rain. And believe it or not, that broccoli, it's not going to form up another big head, but it will put out side shoots, and we call them florets. So you'll get these little broccoli florets forming up on the stems of the foliage, and you can continue to harvest them. I've I've harvested them pretty much from the fall all the way into the spring. If you keep that plant healthy and we don't get a tremendously heavy frost in, oftentimes you can continue to pick broccoli for months and months. Again, it's not going to be a big head again. It's just going to be these small florets, and they're normally, oh, I guess, an inch to two inches in diameter, and then you cut them. That's so the, the key to broccoli is don't wait too long to harvest it. That's the kind I like. I, you know, if I buy, if I ever buy frozen, which I rarely do, I always buy the florets, the florets, right. and, and not the uh, the full size. But is cauliflower the same way? I mean, you mentioned that it's it's a little bit more of a particular plant in the conditions that it prefers. Is the harvesting a little bit different from broccoli, or are we talking generally the same thing? You know, it's generally the same thing, um, and, and because, you know, you should be patted on the back. If you've got a nice little cauliflower head in there and it's full, and whether you grew the purple, the yellow, or the white variety, you might look like, hey, that's a pretty nice size. Um, don't sit there and gawk at it for too long. Hey, if you got that far, go ahead and cut it off. If you cut it off too early, it's still going to eat well. If you wait too long, it might start to get bitter and it might start to disease so i guess on on the, on the case of the broccoli in the cauliflower you're always better off cutting it a little bit early than waiting too late um when it comes to cabbage um cabbage is one of those things you can kind of let it go and then what i do is i will put my hand down there when it looks like you've got a good cabbage head you can squeeze it and it should feel firm to the touch if it feels like a pillow where you can squeeze it and it kind of caves in it's not ready yet so you know, just like in the store, you want a good, firm cabbage head. So you can kind of give it a little squeeze. It should be kind of good size, you know, maybe a little smaller than a bowling ball, um, and then it's ready to go. The thing on cabbage is once you make that cut, you'll cut it off at the base. It, it is not coming back. It's done. It's a, it's a one-time-and-out deal. 
So it, it, it is the annual as opposed to being a perennial in the terms of the vegetation world. Right. It's not going to continue to produce. Uh, and, you know, on, on the subject of cabbages, one of my favorite cabbages I love to produce is Chinese cabbage. And Chinese is more of a leafy-type cabbage, and it grows more upright. Okay, it's got more of an upright growth. But I just love the, uh, the tender and, and the really flavorful foliage on it. But on all of the cabbages, you really have to keep an eye on them. Um, as we get into the fall and a little bit later in the season, um, one of the favorite things that loves to get on the cabbage is called cabbage loopers. And cabbage loopers are essentially small caterpillars You'll see them in the summertime because people will be looking at, oh, look at all the little butterflies out there. Well, to me, they're not little butterflies. Those are moths that are they're coming to a garden near you, and they mean trouble. And then those, basically, they lay the eggs, the larvae de- hatch and develop, and those larvae will tunnel their way through the Chinese cabbage. They'll go into broccoli, they'll go into Brussels sprouts, and they'll just eat their, to their heart's content. So you really have to keep an eye out for them. They're a real problem in the wintertime probably our biggest pest when it comes to the winter vegetables. I was going to ask, what are the biggest pests when it comes to the fall garden? I mean, the insect world kind of changes along with the seasons. Uh, Hopefully the mosquito problem, I can't remember a season where we've been quite so inundated by their presence, but, uh, but, you know, what what can, insect-wise, what should gardeners look out for in the fall? Well, you know, some things are going to be year-round. Year-round, aphids. Aphids can be out there when we have a frost, and they're still going to be active. So watching for these tiny little pear-shaped aphids on any of your plants is always something you want to keep a good look at. Um, there are a couple of different type of caterpillars out there. We mentioned cabbage loopers. There's some other type of caterpillars. Um, really want to keep an eye on them. They will, they're sneaky. You almost don't see them, and then all of a sudden, you know, sometimes you'll, you'll pick a head of cabbage, and, and you go to break it open, and it looks like a tunnel system in there. Like, where did this come from? So you really have to kind of keep an eye out for them. Snails and slugs are also pretty immune to the cool temperatures. Um, they will love to get up into your plants, particularly cabbage and things like that. That's got a dense foliage head, and they will wedge their way in there and, and be like living in the freezer for them. They're just full of food right in there, and they're going to eat it. Um, so, yeah, snails, slugs. You know, when you do see these things, obviously it might be the need to do some controls. Um, I always try to do the least toxic controls first and 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 when it comes to the winter garden we use a lot of what's called bt uh like as in b is in bob t is in tom bt it is a organic product the fancy name is bacillus thuringiensis folks don't have to remember that just remember caterpillar an organic caterpillar killer and so bt is a naturally occurring substance that actually kills what we call lepidoptera which are caterpillars and it's a very effective item for using on your squash, well, not on your squash, but on your um, on your cabbage and your broccoli and things like that. And they can purchase that in most retail centers would carry that product. And it's very safe for humans, consumption, this and that. It's not a problem with that as far as, you know, you're eating the vegetables, but it's very effective on the caterpillars. I am a big fall type of person. I, I prefer the autumn. I mean, I like summer. I love spring. But fall, because of the cooling... You know, I kind of like that, and of course, football. But absolutely, one thing about uh, the depressing aspects of fall, or one of the least appealing, let's say, is the loss of color. I mean, in the springtime, we start to see the the ornamentals bloom, and you know, the spring gardens harvest, and and things like that. Aside from what you've already mentioned, are there things you can plant in the vegetable color that will provide you with color? Yeah, um, you know, I, I'm always a proponent of actually adding flowers to the garden. Um, you know, we always add flowers in our garden in the springtime for, for a reason. A, it's, it's you know, it's, it's kind of aesthetically pleasing, but it brings in pollinators. So we plant everything in the springtime from zinnias to buckwheat, which actually puts out a little white bloom, to marigolds and things like that. Well, you know, that's not going to work too good in the fall garden. But if you add some things in like some pansies and some snapdragons and items like that, A, it can attract beneficial insects to the garden, and then B, again, it's aesthetically pleasing. So that adds some color. Um, plus, you know, there you know, we covered, you know, a, a few of the vegetables, but there are certainly some very attractive winter vegetables out there. We're, we were talking about lettuce a minute ago, and everyone thinks, oh, lettuce, green lettuce. Well, yeah, there's green lettuce, but there's some called fire and ice that are green and red. There are some dark red 
lettuces. Um, there are cabbages. You may have seen some of these ornamental cabbages planted in, you know, in, in raised box planters, and they're real attractive, fluffy-looking ornamental plants. They're actually edible. Those are edible cabbages that just have been bred for their ornate look. You can put those in the garden, and you can either leave them as decoration or eat them. So the edible cabbages. Um, we talked about the colorful, you know, cauliflower. Um, if you start perusing the catalogs out there, and I would suggest folks kind of, you know, I know there's the local seed stores. You're going to find kind of the more common seed there. But if they will go to some of the other places online, like Harris Seeds or Johnny Seeds or even Park Seed, you know, it's a kind of a common one, um, and look through the catalogs, you'll find a lot of things out there that can provide color. I mean, you can grow purple carrots if you want to. Um, it's come so far in, in the way they have, um, you know, done breeding and, and, and hybridization, things like that, that, that we can we can produce about whatever you want color-wise out there, and it, it adds just a nice attraction interest in the garden. Well, one thing that you're noted for, particularly with your spring garden, and, you know, the horse is out of the barn for 2020, but you like to experiment with varieties of corn. And are there things in the winter garden and fall garden that you'd like to experiment with, uh, you know, just to see what works? Maybe this works a little better than that when it comes to hybrids of certain vegetables? You know, I do. Um, each year I try to grow a, a couple of different cauliflower and broccoli varieties. And there's probably not as many varieties as there is in the sweet corn world where we've probably got hundreds and hundreds of different cultivars. Uh, but there's certainly, you know, some new additions each year of uh, different broccoli, this and that. Uh, Brussels sprouts. I know we've had this conversation before, and, and I always hate to admit this, but I have tried Brussels sprouts, I think, every way but fried. Maybe I would eat them fried. I cannot stand the taste of Brussels sprouts. But, uh, you know, a lot of people adore them. My wife loves them. We grow lots of them. But we sell some. And uh, at the end of the day, I can't seem to like the things. They're, they're really cool to grow. They're a fun plant. They look like a Dr. Zeus tree when they're growing. But, um, you know, that that being said, it's, just, it's, it's one of those things that... Um, you know, I, I think you just need to experiment. If, if you've never grown some things, <coughs> excuse me, you, you don't want to grow a lot of it. Try some, just a package of seeds of something different. There's always new lettuce varieties, leaf lettuce varieties out there to, to experiment with and to play with. Um, and then, yeah, I mean, if you want to get really, really creative in the winter garden, well, try growing the summer garden in the winter garden. And by that, I mean, you could literally grow a tomato plant inside during the wintertime. We grow tomatoes at Griffin in, in the greenhouse during the winter. So you can trick things if you can create the right environment. Well, I was going to ask, and that's one of the questions on my uh, agenda today, is for the people who don't have a whole lot of space but have, say, the window boxes or inside, and, it, you know, anybody can grow mints and anybody can grow peppers as evidenced by the fact that I can do those. But what types of, of winter vegetation can people grow with a limited amount of space? Well, one thing I'd really suggest um – particularly on something like a, a small window box or something that's very close to the house, and this is something that we practice all the time, is be sure to plant some herbs close to the house that you can literally just go outside when you've got the frying pan going and grab them and throw them into the dish. Um, and, of course, when you think of winter, you think, well, herbs, they're, they're spring. No, there are winter herbs as well. Uh, a couple of suggestions, and we're planting them right now. Um, chives. Chives are a great addition to the garden. Uh, they're slender little uh, onion garlic family type stuff that adds great flavor. Cilantro, one of our favorites. Cilantro, obviously, if you're familiar with Mexican dishes, that's a staple in most Mexican dishes. It's almost a uh, lemony kind of flavor type herb that loves cool weather. Parsley, another you know perennial favorite that everyone seems to be familiar with. Well, parsley's not going to make it in the dead of summer. You can plant it right now, cool season. Garlic, and you know we experiment with different garlics out there. Um, garlic is one of those things you don't get the, the, the quick benefit like you would the other herbs. Garlic you're going to be planting now, but the actual harvest is going to occur on the other side of the cool temperatures, usually in early spring of next year. So, you know, there are a number of uh, cool season herbs that I think would add, um, you know, kind of add excitement. And, and I like to put those close to the house. That way we can kind of get those. Another one that's real popular and I don't know why, because, again, I put it in a category that tastes like Brussels sprouts, but not a different, but kind of the way I like Brussels so much, as you know, uh, arugula. I don't know if you've heard of that one. Oh, yes. But it, 
kind of gotten popular to using salads and stuff. And I don't know if you've ever just chewed on an arugula leaf, but I mean, I think I'd rather, you know, chew on a Pepto Bismo tablet or something. But uh, people love it. Um, so we plant arugula, you know, and uh, it's it's just kind of neat to know that you can go right outside, grab this stuff. And, and yeah, you know, my wife makes all kinds of Mexican food and we make spaghetti and this and that. And we just, we don't go buy herbs. We basically grab them out of the, Right outside the door here, I'm, I'm looking, you know, we've got several containers and pots, and even in the ground right there around our flower beds are the herbs. Well, we don't want to have to walk all the way out to the garden 100 yards away. We want to get them right here. Well, and some people, you know, can only, you know, if they live in an apartment or whatever and have really limited space. And so I've known some people to do this, and I, I was hoping you would give suggestions. I've known people who grow herbs as best they can inside their house for no more reason than the aromatic properties. That, that's true. Um, you know, there is that, that, you know, you're going to have a, um, you, you know, you're going to have like kind of a, I'm trying to think of the right word. Yeah, just the scent of those, those right. herbs growing times can, can give you a, uh, you know, that's almost like court therapy. It's a, it's a good thing, um, makes the house smell better and so forth. So, and then, you know, you can get as far, you can use everything fresh or you can get a dehydrator or use your oven and dry these things out for long-term storage, you know, so whatever you want to do. But, uh, I think herbs are something that are interesting to play around with. Um, like we talked about, you can certainly use some of the more um, flowery and interesting-looking cabbages right in your landscape bed right outside the house, or you could put them in raised beds, and, and you could essentially eat off your raised bed or your, your, your flower planter because you could have the edible cabbages, even though they're sort of grown for being ornate, you can eat them. And uh, so there's a lot of different things you could do. On a small scale, you know, you don't... You don't need a large garden. I've seen people growing off of, like you mentioned, um, five-gallon buckets. You know, get a Home Depot bucket or Lowe's bucket. Make sure you drill some holes in it that it drains well. Uh, get in some good garden soil, potting soil in there, and shoot, you could grow. And you could have six or seven of those and have a little broccoli and herbs in one and and a couple other things and, and certainly have a, a garden right there in a non-traditional sense. Are there things that you really need to separate in your winter garden, things that don't necessarily grow well together? That's a good question. And, and, you know, there's been all kinds of studies on this companion planting and don't grow this, don't grow that. I don't think there's any real, and this is my opinion, so I may get, you know, backlash on this. Look, we bring you on because you're an expert. Well, this is from, you know, the school of doing it and not necessarily book knowledge. Um, I, I don't see a great association of, you know, planting this next to that seems to make a big difference. Where I do see a difference, and I, and I might mention this if we backtrack all the way to the beginning of the program here, we talked about, you know, kind of ending the summer garden. Be sure to take meticulous notes or have a great memory of where things were planted. And same thing with your vegetable garden. That comes in the, in the wintertime. Where am I planting this stuff this year? Because I'm, I'm a big believer in rotating those vegetables to a different area of the garden the following year. And ideally, maybe not planting the same variety in the same spot for at least two years if you have enough room. And the reason is, in the words, crop rotation, sometimes some nasty little evils can occur in the soil, like diseases and other type things that are very um, stationary. They're not going to move around a lot. And they're, they're usually a very specific to a host-type plant, which a host meaning it might be something that attacks garlic or it might be something that attacks, you know, your broccoli. Well, if we can rotate families of vegetables around the garden each year, oftentimes we can break that cycle. It's, 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 we're, not putting in, we're not putting that little buffet of that same plant back in the same area. We're moving it to another area. So that's where I think, you know, moving things around has a big plus. But, you know, whether it comes to planting broccoli next to cauliflower next to this, um, as far as for that particular year, I don't think that makes a huge difference. More so in the spring garden, because we tend to grow taller plants in the spring garden when you're talking about things like corn and okra and things that can get up high. You have to be careful they don't shade the other plants, depending on how they have that, you know, set up for sunlight, if that makes sense. So that you do Kind of pay attention. Makes perfect sense. Uh, you know, you grow, you you have a lot of success growing muscadines. Are there vine vegetables and plants that do well and fall in winter conditions? Um, as far as the vining type, I'm trying to think, uh, winter vegetables, there's not a lot out there. Um, you know, we, we do have what's called, 
and I don't want folks to get confused, we do have winter squash. And winter squash grows on a vine, and when we say winter squash, we're talking about things like butternut, um, turbans head, um, acorn squash. But those are actually planted in the summer, and they are getting harvested right now. So towards the end of summer, they're being harvested, and, and they take a lot of room. Pumpkins was another one. Pumpkins are squash that will be harvested anywhere between. Mine are getting ready to be harvested soon. Between now and October, you know, those type things are, are coming into play. You know, that that I was just that was going to be my next question. I just had written it down. Pumpkins, uh, you know, that is kind of the staple of the Halloween and Thanksgiving season. Is it too yeah. late for this year to get that into the ground? Absolutely too late, um, unfortunately. Yeah, you, you better look at buying a pumpkin <laughs> because uh, you, your pumpkins are normally going to be planted in late spring, somewhere in the area of about June to uh, at the latest, maybe the end of June. Uh, and that's going to give you enough time to get them up, growing, and ready. Most people want their pumpkins ready, you know, as you said, for fall decorations. They want them ready to pick somewhere around the first part of October. And, you know, pumpkins, if you got them stored somewhat in a shaded area, um, you know, they can last a good month or whatever, you know, sitting out there on the porch, or particularly if they're in the house, they'll last longer. So, but, yeah, planting them right now, they're not going to make it. Um, you know, they would germinate, the vines would grow, but the cool weather will get them before they ever start to produce. But now, it's my understanding that pumpkins, even as big as they can get, don't take very long to grow. Um, right. When you consider the size of what a pumpkin, you know, depending on the variety, um, you're looking at something in the area of about, oh, you know, 60, maybe anywhere from 60 to 85 days till maturity. So... Even that might sound like a lot of days. Um, you know, you're, some pumpkin varieties, you know, one of the things I did, which we're not doing right now because of the pandemic, I used to go to North Carolina and judge their fairs. And I would be the vegetable judge for all these different categories. But, of course, one of them was largest pumpkin. And, you know, people think, oh, that's a huge pumpkin right there. That's, you know, a 100-pound pumpkin. Yeah, that's a big one. But when, when you go to the fairs, we're talking in terms of 1,800-pound pumpkins. I mean, we're talking about something the size of a Volkswagen that people grow. Um, and, and it's hard to believe that that gets that big in three months. I mean, that is really pushing it. So, and of course, there's a lot to that, all kinds of little tricks and techniques to get a big one. But, uh, and, of course, it starts with picking the right variety. Yeah. But that being, yeah, they grow amazingly fast. In your spring and summer gardens, you have to grow some things on stakes just because that's the way they grow is is squash in the fall and winter is that in that category no um you know your your winter squashes that are being harvested now and things like that normally you're going to let them um, grow along the ground um, we use a lot of weed fabric just to kind of keep them weed free so they're growing across that right but um normally your winter garden there's not a whole lot out there that you're going to stake which makes it nice one of the things I really like about the fall and winter garden to me is just there's just less maintenance. I mean, you still have to keep up with it, but you don't have quite as many insects and diseases to worry about. Certainly the temperatures are cooler, and even though you also do have, you know, you have winter weeds you got to watch for, it's not quite as prolific as what you see in the spring and the summer. Well, this, you know, I don't mean to embarrass you with this question, but I'm relying on your expertise. Mm-hmm. Uh, how much of gardening is common sense and trial and error, and how much of it is book learning? I mean, can you be successful going either avenue and then ultimately combining the two? You, you know, I think you can, and, and maybe that's the best mix. Uh, certainly, I kind of grew up, my dad you know, was a gardener, so I learned a little bit there. And uh, having <laughs> eaten and breathed it for the last you know, 50 years or 40 years, um, I learned a lot through mistakes, trial and error. And I always think that's the best way to go. But, you know, one of the advantages we have right now, we have so many good, uh, particularly University of Georgia and there are other universities out there, um, you know, publications that if you're like, hey, we talked about pumpkins. I want to grow pumpkins. I just have no idea how to start or whatever. We'll go to University of Georgia and look up homegrown pumpkins. Um, we've, we've got a fact sheet out there on how to do it. it tell you what varieties to try, how to plant, how to fix the soil. You know, I think there's so much internet access right now, even YouTube's out there, as you're aware, where somebody can actually see this being done that we did not have years ago. So, you know, in all honesty, I find it hard to think that other than you can't control the weather, 
you know, there's so much good information out right there. It'd be hard to fail at least growing something in the garden right now. Um, there's plenty of good information. You got good county extension agents out there that can assist people. Um, you know, it's it's really a I call it a hobby in a way that you know that most people could get into, and I think have success the first time out. Do you judge any like state fairs and competitions virtually now that the pandemic has has taken away a lot of the in person activity? No, I have not. And, and the thing is, these state fairs are you know they're more than just the vegetables. Um, these are particularly in North Carolina. I mean, I do the uh, state fair in Raleigh, North Carolina, every year. It's a three-day event that I have to judge. It takes three days to judge all the – I mean, it is the, – the, the, all the vegetables would cover a football field. They've got so many in there to judge. But that's just part of it. I mean, they've got crafts. They've got all the rides. They've got the food vendors. You're talking about tens of thousands of people, and they just – you know, they decide they're just going to cancel the whole thing for safety reasons. Same thing, I do another one up in um, – I do the National Fair up North Carolina. That's <coughs> up there, um, Winston-Salem. And I thought they were going to be a go this year, but they canceled, and it's just due to the you know the crowds. These these places are super popular. I mean, we got the same thing going on here. I guess you know in, in Georgia we've canceled the. I guess they've canceled the fair down yes. in Perry. Yes, the state the, the Georgia uh, State Fair has been canceled. So you know it's that thing that um, there's just no way to do it. They're they're not going to do it virtually or anything like that. Um, it it makes it a lot easier on me, I guess. It's, but you know someone have to take a camera or telephone around let me look at everything it would be hard to do to be honest because there's so many entries and you have to kind of compare this one to that one that one to this one so i just don't know that you could do it well one of the and i know you're a big gadget and equipment guy but let's say that uh now that the summer season is over we have no intention of growing a fall or winter garden what's the best way to protect our equipment until we need it again in the spring yeah, so that's a, that's a great question. Um, certainly when it comes to just hand tools, and we're talking about shovels, rakes, hose, things like that, uh, and, and, and sometimes I'm, you know, the pot calling the kettle black. I don't always get to this. But if you can clean them off, get the mud off of them, whatever dirt you had on there, you know, rinse them off with a hose, pressure wash them, do whatever, you know, that'll go a long ways to keeping them to rust. Spray them down with, a, with like, some type of oil penetrant. You know, not necessarily WD-40. That tends to evaporate very fast, but some type of oil-based thing like a liquid wrench or something like that, just kind of give them a good coating oil. If they're wooden handles, um, either paint the handles or coat them with something like um, tongue oil or linseed oil that will penetrate in and help preserve the wood. On the motorized equipment, in this case we might be talking about things like tillers and things like that, um, you know, you really have to look at winterization anytime you're going to be storing that thing for over oh, probably a month or more, which you might do in the winter. What I, I think the best way to do it is to empty out all of the fuel. Um, either run it out using it in the garden or pour it out into an, you know, an approved gas, gas can container. Run the fuel out, but then you got to realize you don't have it all out. It's in the carburetor and the lines. You need to crank that machine and run that thing until it stalls and maybe pull the cord or whatever it is a couple of times to make sure there's absolutely no fuel left anywhere in that system. Dry storing it like that's way better than leaving the old fuel in there all winter long because what happens, particularly with the ethanol fuels we have now, um, they, they collect water. They will attract moisture. It will get into that fuel, into the fuel lines, and it makes it a giant headache in the springtime trying to recrank those things. The other thing I suggest is maybe pull the spark plugs out and either change them or inspect them and clean them. If it is a machine like a four-stroke that has oil in it, like a lawnmower or larger tiller, uh, might be a good time to change the oil filter if it has one and change the oil. Basically what you're doing is kind of making this thing ready to go in the springtime other than putting in new fuel is what you'll have to add in the spring. So you're, it, it's, it's a pain in the neck, but I do it every year to my chainsaws, my tillers, just because I know it. Hey, if I don't do this, I'm going to be cursing in the springtime. And it's sort of job security for the lawnmower shops in the spring because they know, you know, half the people or less are going to actually winterize their equipment. So that means in the springtime, you try to bring a lawnmower in, you know, to a lawnmower repair shop about mm, late April, you know, and they are filled up with machines because everyone has forgot to do this. So, you know, get ahead of the game, winterize your equipment, make sure everything's good to go for spring other than the fuel, and uh, you'll be in good shape. How often should we be looking to change things like tiller blades and you know sharp things that are necessary to till gardens? 
Yeah, you know, the tether blades are just something you have to watch. Um, it, most people can get multiple years out of tiller blades. If you're like, you know, my garden started out as, and it still is, it's got rocks in it. And certainly, you know, if you've got nice loamy soil, you're not going to go through those tiller blades very quickly. If you're hitting a lot of rocks and things like that, um, you know, you're liable to wear them out in a couple of years. So you just have to watch them. When they get to where, you know, their, their, their normal length has now been reduced by several inches, it's probably time to change them. And any standard lawnmower shop, if, we can't, if you don't feel comfortable doing it yourself, can do this for you? Absolutely, yeah. It's, you know, changing lawnmower, I'm sorry, changing tiller tines is not a difficult job. It is a tedious job, particularly depending on how many you have on there, because you have to, uh, you know, most of them have got two bolts per tine. Um, but, you know, between lawnmower shops can do it for you. There are so many on, we talked about YouTube. You could probably YouTube the machine you have. Somebody was doing it on YouTube. You can kind of get an idea from that. And there are a lot of different places you can buy parts now online um, where you can virtually put in any type of, the main key is know the model number, so try to get that before you start looking online. Get Make sure you have the right model number, and I do it all the time. You know, get parts delivered to your house, and then you just you sit there and put them on. Well, you spend an awful lot of time doing publication work on the University of Georgia website. Do they have uh, equipment maintenance resources on um, there as well? Yes, we do. Um, it, it's been several years ago, but I did a publication on basically um, select. I think I could be wrong, but I think it's called Selection um, and Care of garden equipment something similar to that anyway i may be off on the topic but uh but if you put anything close to that under the uh, uga extension publications and then you'll see a search thing in there in the searches put um garden equipment or something like that it should hit on that publication and it talks in detail about the winterization we talked about how to select equipment you know how to figure out hey what size tiller do i need do i need a little tiny one or do i need a bigger one um so it's it, it, it's a pretty good little pub Bob, let me quickly, before we get away, get these announcements in from the UGA Griffin yes, campus. Uh, Red Cross Blood Drive is going to be held in the Stuckey Auditorium on the UGA Griffin campus on September 9th. That's next Wednesday from 1 to 6 p.m. to arrange a time. And for more information, re- visit www.redcrossblood.org and enter UGA Griffin as the code. The Research and Education Garden is now open to the public. It does close at 5 p.m. daily. It's located at 129 West Ellis Road and provides research a place to study various plant species from trees to shrubs to ornamental flowers and greenery. You're welcome to picnic with the family and friends and enjoy the scenery and some of the interesting pollinators. Speaking of, but they're going to be doing scarecrows in the garden at the research in the garden coming up here at the end of October. And unfortunately, because of COVID-19, the Franklin College of Arts and Sciences has had to cancel the UGA Psych Day at UGA that was scheduled in November. Uh, but, uh, gee, Bob, I lost my train of thought there, what I was going to ask you. Uh, it was something, oh, the pollinator census that they did a couple of weeks ago. Did you have any interest in that or just from a gardening? I mean, have you ever, like, watched a single plant for 15 minutes, like that was suggested, just to see how well, many insects come around a single plant? You know, I've done it. I didn't do it during the census, but I certainly have paid key attention to my pollinators since that's everything for us when it comes to vegetables. Um, but, no, I did not participate in that last one, but I understand it's, those things are usually tremendous success, and it's it's really interesting to see just how big a, a role that the pollinators play in our gardens. Yeah, how um, huge is that? I mean, what plants tend to, what vegetables tend to be the most affected? I mean, or is it um, just all-encompassing? Well, um, certainly the cucurbits, and when we say cucurbits, that just encompasses uh, cucumber, squash, um, the, the pumpkins we talked about, watermelon. Those are heavily, and I mean heavily, um, dependent on insect pollination. So that is one of the key ones. Things like lettuce and, and cabbage and all, they don't really need pollination much because you're actually eating the leafy part of it. Um, but, you know, there are certainly some, some, some fall and winter vegetables that will need pollination, but, but definitely the spring summer garden is going to be the one most reliant on seeing a bunch of pollinators near the garden. All right, Bob, we got about one minute left in today's program. What is it that you would say as a final parting thought to those who are getting ready to start their fall garden? Yeah, I would say, well, don't give up yet. I know it's hot. Um, I don't like being out there probably any more than you do when it's 95 degrees. But at least, if nothing else, um, you know, put the garden to bed doing a good fall cover crop. But, hey, if you got a little bit of spunk left in you and you want to kind of garden a little bit more and you'd like to see it going, 
consider planting some of the uh, winter garden vegetables we talked about. You know, you can do a small area. It doesn't have to be as large as the summer garden. But try a few, you know, cabbages and, and broccoli. And maybe if you, you really feel good about it, throw some cauliflower out there and just have a good time with it. Well, Bob Westerfield, the Extension Horticulturalist and Coordinator on the University of Georgia Griffin campus, we very much appreciate your time, and I know it was a little rough today having to do it by phone, I, I, seeing in person and seeing the facial expressions and just how much you enjoy talking about gardening is a real experience for me, but we do very much appreciate your time and look forward to seeing you back in the studio really, really soon. Yes, sir. Look forward to it and enjoy being with you. Uh, this has been the... University of Georgia Griffin Campus News. We hope that you enjoyed this morning's program, and uh, we will be with you next week, 167 hours from now. We hope that you will make your plans to join us for the next edition of the University of Georgia Griffin Campus News.